Good morning, Zion. How's everybody doing this morning? Someone's ready to party. <laughs> hey, uh, real quickly, I just wanted to give a plug. Uh, Love and Respect Conference is coming up. And if you sign up uh, between this weekend and next weekend, we have a free, they have free Louis gift for people who sign up uh, now. Abrams, preach it, brother. Like that's, whoo, there's the word. And it's barbecue sauce. I mean, <laughs> there we go. Uh, you're welcome for Tim Allen fans out there. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. On behalf of our staff and all call this home, we're so glad you've chosen to be with us. We know you could have been anywhere uh, this morning, and yet you chose to be here with us. So thank you so much. Um, last week, so we've been going through the book of Galatians, and last week we talked about that sometimes in order to get to the top of the mountain, there's that struggle. It's not easy. In fact, it's often hard work to get to the top. And and I share that story about climbing Long's Peak, and that last two miles of Long's Peak is the most difficult. But when you get to the top, it's worth it. Well, the next, the last two chapters of Galatians are kind of the top. But we're in that final push, that final surge, where Paul wants to bring us to really where he's trying to get us to, which is talking about life in the Spirit. And, you know, I was thinking about this message, and i got to be honest, I'm grateful for our staff some of you may or may not know this. We do what's called a sermon read-through every week. Whoever's preaching, we bring the sermon, and it's an opportunity. Because sometimes you might, as a preacher, as a teacher, I might think what I'm saying is really landing and connecting. And everybody else be like, nope. In fact, I've had this. I've had Sundays where I thought I just knocked it out of the park, and I go, hey, babe, what do you think? She goes, meh. <laughs> That's when you know someone loves you, when they can just say, meh, right? Still hitting puberty. It's okay. My voice isn't back yet. And uh, so I bring this message, and as we're doing it, normally, like, when they're taking a lot of notes, it means a lot of feedback, and they're not taking a lot of notes, and we get finished, and I said, okay, give me feedback, and they, like, they took a butcher knife and just filleted my message wide open, and, and here's the thing, that's what I asked them to do. The whole point of the sermon read-through is not to have affirming, like, everything's great, it's that I want to be the best pastor the best preacher, the best teacher I can be, and the, sometimes the best way to do that is in community. Because sometimes it's hard to get out of my own head, out of my own way, and they did their job. Now, here's what was funny about it. Every time someone would say something negative, except for Derek, um, they would apologize ahead of advance. They'd be like, I'm so sorry, like, no, I, the message is great. I'm like, stop apologizing. Derek's just like, that was horrible. And anybody who knows Derek, actually, no, he actually did apologize. It's not bad, but it's not great either, Jason. And I'm like, Thanks, rock on. No, in reality, I thanked them and I said, no, this is the whole point of it. The whole point of why we do this is not so that whoever's preaching can feel like it's not always affirmation. Sometimes we need to have that challenge, to have that pushing in us. And you need people who are safe enough, that you trust enough, to push into areas that maybe you're blind. How many of you have people that you trust that can speak into the blind spots in your life? Anybody got those? I am so grateful for those in my life. That's what happens with Sermon Read-Through. I'll tell you, the message this morning is significantly different than it was at Thursday on Sermon Read-Through. And it's because I believe God used that team to speak into it to help me understand a better idea of where God wanted to go. And so as we're preparing for this, remember we're going through this book of Galatians. And before we get there, we have to talk about kind of what, what, what is God wanting to do in this. And so let me share a quick story with you. When, when my kids were little, we'll back up a second. I, I was a pretty athletic kid. I was never great at sports. I was always just good. Good enough that I could play with my friends. I played basketball, volleyball. I know short guy, tall people, sports. It's all good. And I was good enough. 
And so when my kids were around five, six years old, I decided I wanted to teach them to play baseball. Now, here's what's funny. I'm horrible at baseball. I took a line drive to the face when I was like seven or eight years old in my front yard. And after that, like, baseball terrifies me. But I decided I want to play this so we get the wiffle ball and the bat. You know what I'm, I'm talking about? That plastic thing that children use to beat on their parents. And, and so we're playing toss in the backyard. I'm trying to teach them just how to catch. And I'd throw the ball to Eli. Eli would catch the ball. I then he'd throw it back to me, and then I'd throw it to Indy, and then Indy would just throw it wherever she wanted. And I, so at first I thought she just couldn't throw very well, and so I go and I run over and I pick up the ball. I throw the ball to Eli. Eli throws the ball back to me. I throw the ball to Indy. She throws it wherever she wants, and now she's starting to laugh. She's finding this humorous, and so I'm thinking maybe she doesn't get the rules, right? So again, I pick up the ball, I run over again, I throw the ball to Eli, he throws it to me, I throw it to Indy, and she continues to throw it. Now I'm getting frustrated because clearly we're not playing the same game. And so I go over to her and I said, Indy, the goal is to throw the ball. And she goes, I said, why aren't you throwing the ball? And she goes, because I don't want to. It's funnier this way. And, and I'm like, that's fun for you. It's not fun for me, right? And here's the thing is that when you have two people playing different games, it's not very fun, is it? Imagine for a moment you're playing golf and your partner's playing football. That's not going to end well for the golfer. Well, I mean, I got a weapon, but that's about it. Imagine I'm in my backswing coming through and a guy tackles me. Why? We're playing different sports. What makes sports fun, what makes them engaging is the boundaries. It's that within the boundaries is where you actually find the freedom to play. And when two people aren't playing the same thing, when they have different boundaries, different goals, it results not in fun but in chaos. What we have discovered over time is that real freedom has to have boundaries in order to really be free. For instance, when my children were younger, before they, I mean, can I just tell you what a blessing it is to live in Clear Lake, Iowa? Like, think about it. If I was in El Cajon, I mean, this was back in the 80s, I was biking all over the place in a big city in California. And here, my children, everything is so safe. It's great. My children are 10 years old and wandering around and doing their thing. You don't do that in California anymore. In the 80s, that was just called childhood. Now it's called child abuse. And it was just a very different thing, right? But I tell my kids, you can play in the backyard. This entire backyard is yours. Everything in the backyard, do it. You want to build a fort, play tag, you want to dig water. I don't care. Whatever you do in the backyard, this is your domain. Just don't go outside of it. But you always have that one kid who wants to challenge the boundaries. Now, we see this in the Garden of Eden too, don't we? When God made, created the Garden of Eden, he sets it up, and they have access to everything in the garden, everything they could ever want to need. All the food is provided for them. The work, they work without toil. And God says, but there's one boundary. That's it, just one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours, but don't eat there. And of course, where does Satan tempt them first? You know that one thing you're not supposed to do? Do that. Human nature is to push boundaries. The problem is, is when we ignore boundaries, we end up stepping into freedom and affecting freedom. Uh, if you've been watching the playoffs at all right now, last weekend the Bengals played the Raiders. And uh, how many of you watched that game? Am I the only, some of you, okay. So here's what happened. Uh, so... In the middle of a play, the ref blows the whistle, which is, were, or basically it's a, it means stop, the play is over. Well, the Bengals scored a touchdown, and because they blew a whistle, some of the Raiders stopped defending. Well, the refs, what they're supposed to say is, well, the play was dead, the whistle was blown, the touchdown doesn't count, and the refs instead said touchdown. Now, here's the thing. The Raiders all cried foul, and rightfully so. Do you think the Bengals cried foul? No, the Bengals were like, what are you talking about? That was totally a legit play. See, here's the thing. We like boundaries when they're in our favor. 
We don't like them when they're not in our favor. Why does this matter? Well, we're going to get into Paul, who's going to be talking about freedom in Christ. And what Paul's desire is, is that realizing that we are free in Jesus, but freedom does not mean we can do whatever we want. It means that there are godly boundaries, that God has determined boundaries for us. And in chapters 1 through 4 in Galatians, you have the Judaizers, these legalists, who have They've infringed on the boundaries of freedom in Christ. They're defining the boundaries, not Jesus, and Paul's calling foul. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. It means that when legalism happened, it affected the freedom of the Gentiles. If you have your Bibles, we want to be a people of the Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Now, before we get into this, I want to tell you that boundaries are good, but to quote the wise philosopher Toby Mack, The only people who get upset about setting boundaries are the ones who were benefiting from you having none. Let me say that again. The only people who get upset about setting boundaries are the ones who are benefiting from you having none. Another counselor who I don't know who it was said this. The only people who are upset you have boundaries are the people who don't have any. Boundaries are a necessity for freedom in life. We need them not just in sports. We need them in our jobs, we need them in our city, we need them in our country, we need them in our marriages, and yes, we need them in our faith. Now, as we we had just talked about love and respect, one of the things that we find is the reason why love and respect, these conferences are so helpful, is they help us have a better conversation around what a healthy marriage looks like. And sometimes people say, well, Jason, I, I don't need that, I don't need to go to a conference like Love and Respect to say I've got a great marriage. Do you want to keep a great marriage? Go to a conference like Love and Respect. Other people will say, well, Jason, I'm not married yet. I don't, we don't need to go to things like that. You want to know why dating people or single people should go to events like this? And so that they can get a healthier understanding of what relationships look like. Boundaries are helpful and good. How many of you want healthy marriages? I bet you if I were to ask this next question, almost all of you would raise your hand. How many of you have found that boundaries help your marriage? They do. Boundaries also help your faith. See, people infringe on boundaries regularly, and we have to be careful of this. All right, here we go. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Paul starts off by saying, literally, for the purpose of freedom, Jesus came to set you free. Freedom is at the heart of God. God desires that every single person in this room, in our city, in our country, in our world, is free in Jesus. Because God is a God of freedom. But again, freedom doesn't mean you do whatever you want. Freedom means having boundaries. Boundaries and understanding what does it mean to truly live free. He then goes on and he gives this challenge. He says, listen, you need to stand firm. I want to quote this commentator. His name's Todd Wilson. Freedom has an enemy. His name is legalism, and he's a tyrant who would love nothing better than to have you bend your neck to his enslaving yoke. Legalism is treating that which is good as though it were essential. Whenever Christians turn something valuable into something ultimate, legalism is at work and freedom is forfeited. Let me reiterate it this way. Whenever Christians turn something valuable, something good, even something helpful, 
into something ultimate, that's called legalism. We see this all the time in the church. We see it in other areas. I've seen it in my own life. Here's often how legalism plays itself in the church where people take things that are good and they make them ultimate. And when you do that, you are now moving to a different slave master, certain theologies. I went through this phase when I was finishing my MDiv. It's hard while doing my Master's of Divinity to not start falling into certain theological trends because Paul talks a lot about election and predestination and all these big theological terms. And there was a point in my own life where I found myself caring more about theology than caring about Jesus. I see this happen with Christians and pastors where they'll get in debates and fights. In church history, one of the biggest black eyes that exists in the history of the church, 2,000 years, came around 14th, 15th, 16th century, where Christians were literally killing each other over baptism. Where there was a group who were saying, you don't need to baptize babies, and the people that were baptizing babies were saying, you're a heretic, and you know how you do with heretics? You kill them. And so literally, people were lit on fire, they were crucified, all these horrible things in the name of Jesus. Because you know what screams Jesus to me? Killing people when you don't agree with them. And when non-Christians, and some Christians look back at the history of the church, they see that. They don't see Jesus. What they see is infighting. This still happens today. We just don't kill each other with physical things. We kill each other with our words. This matters to Jesus. Where we get caught up in non-essential things and we make them essential. Here's other ones. Music and liturgy styles. The worship wars are a real thing. Where you have certain people, and, and I, again, I'll share my own failure in this. You'll have churches where, where people will be upset. Well, that's not real worship. Real worship uses hymns and liturgy. No, no, real worship, people have to raise their hands and sing songs with drums. If that doesn't happen, it's not real worship. When I was in my late teens, I got introduced to what was called the Vineyard, uh, Vineyard Church. Vineyard was known for its music ministry. And I'll, I'll tell you personally, the music of the Vineyard brought tremendous healing to this very broken person in his teens and in his early 20s. There. The, the music that was written talked about God's heart, the Father's heart, this worship, and it was charismatic, and people were raising their hands. And as I started seeing that, the impact it had on me, I took what was good, and I made it essential, and I started becoming a judger of people in churches that didn't worship the way I did. And while I never said it out loud, here's what went through my heart. If I went to a church and they weren't singing vineyard music, well, they may not really love Jesus. If people weren't raising their hands, well, I mean, Christians should raise their hands and worship. And, and inside, I was becoming this little legalist, this little Judaizer who was judging people because I took something that was good and beneficial, but I made it ultimate. It's a trap that we all can fall into. We all have those things that we will judge other people for instead of looking at the heart of what Jesus really cares about. Speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts, this stuff is divided the church. Even today, I've talked to people that are hung up on this. These are non-essentials. Infant baptism versus dedication and believer's baptism. You know what? When I stand before Jesus, he's not going to ask, were you baptized as a baby? I do believe in, in the theology of infant baptism. Let me be clear. I believe God does something through it. But I'm not saved by infant baptism. I'm saved by Jesus. Amen? And so what should we really care about? We have to care about the things that God cares about. And if you disagree with that, that's okay. We have people in our church who do not believe in infant baptism. Guess what? Nowhere in the Bible does it demand, does it command that we baptize babies. There's a theology behind it, but it is not an essential. What is essential is baptism. It's a command that God has given us. 
When we get hung up in the non-essentials, we can run into that risk of legalism, of falling into us setting the boundaries, not God. Now, here's part of what can happen as we do this, and I think we miss this. Paul says these words. He says, listen, in order to have your freedom, stand firm, which is a military term. It literally means to be on guard, to be ready to resist, to hold your ground, to stand together. Stand firm. When somebody tries to enslave you, hold your ground, but you don't hold it alone. You hold it with others. And then he uses this weird word, yoke. Now, uh, farmers probably know this. I didn't know this until my 20s. But uh, in the ancient world and in still some cultures today, they didn't have farming equipment. They had what was called a yoke. A yoke was this wooden beam that you put across an animal's shoulders. And that's how they would pull their tractor, how they would pull the plow. That's how if you were in a, horse, uh, in a cart, you would pull the cart. And you would yoke these things together. The yoke binds you. It sets a boundary in your life. Now, in ancient Judaism, this is so cool. When you were taught a, a certain rabbi's teaching, you were told that you were holding on to the yoke of that rabbi. That you were under the yoke of the rabbi's teaching. You were abiding by their boundaries. This is why Jesus says these words. Come to me, you who are weary and tired, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus still has a yoke. He still has a burden, but it's a light burden. It's not a burden made by man. It's a burden that is infused with the Holy Spirit. We are called to hold on to that. And Paul says, listen, be careful. Stand firm. Don't be yoked again into slavery. Now, here's the thing. There are different types of yokes that are taking place that were enslaving them. For the Gentiles, they were not Jewish. Their yoke was liberalism. And I'm not talking about politics right now. This is not liberal politics. Liberalism from a biblical definition is believing you define what is right, you define what is good, and therefore you can do whatever you want. You do you, boo. That's biblical liberalism. We're not talking about politics. He says, listen, you actually were yoked to a different type of slave master in that you thought you defined what was good, but what you defined as good ultimately led to death. But the Jews equally had a yoke, and their yoke was not liberalism. It was the law. The law yoked them, and now they had to be completely obedient to the law, which was legalism. And if they broke that law, they were outside of God's care. But here is the problem. The yoke of the law was this. The law reveals your sin, and once it reveals your sin, now you must be punished for that sin. Two equally harsh masters. And Jesus says, I have a new yoke. And I'm not a harsh master. I love my children. Many years ago, and I wish I had shared this first service. Many years ago, I went through a, a depression, and I remember going to the Lord. I was in my early 20s. And I heard the Lord say to me this, you're my son first and my servant second. I know too many Christians who are so concerned about serving God that they forget that they are children of God in Jesus. That God does want us to serve him but we're serving out of our identity as children. 
That is the yoke of Christ. It's a yoke that ultimately brings freedom, freedom that is in Jesus. And we're called to stand firm in the gospel of freedom of Jesus, knowing that we're not saved by human effort or power, but saved by what Jesus has done on the cross. Galatians 5, 2-4, he says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, which was legalism, that was binding into this idea that the law is what set you free, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Those words should, should make you give you some pause. If you believe in any way that you are responsible for your salvation, that ultimately what determines whether or not you are saved is if you've done enough, Christ has no value. He is worthless to you. You know how many Christians I talk to that when I ask them, I actually just read a survey about this. There's a large percentage of Christians in the church who if you ask them, will they go to heaven, their response is, well, I think I'm good enough. No, 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 you're not saved because you're good enough. You're saved because Jesus was good enough. Amen? We're not saved. The gospel is not that my human effort is enough. The gospel is that what Jesus did on the cross was enough to satisfy. It was enough to make me right with God when I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Now, we do this in other areas. I don't know very many people in this room. Actually, if you were raised Jewish and became a Christian, praise the Lord, that's awesome. But most of us are Gentiles. You know what most of us are caught in? It's not legalism, it's liberalism. We struggle with believing we determine what's right. That it doesn't matter what God's Word says. And, and I find myself in this trap regularly, but I often find it in the church where Christians, people who say they love Jesus, and thankfully it's not mine to determine who's saved and who's not, but Christians who will say, well, I know the Bible says this, but, and you all know the, the problem with the word but, the minute you say the word but, you've just disqualified everything else before it, right? People who say, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but, that is a different form of slavery. It's a very different yoke. And you're not living within the freedom of the confines of what God wants for you. You're now setting the boundaries, and you think by expanding the boundaries, it makes you freer, when in reality, you're going to end up in a trap. You're going to end up either, one, trying to work for your salvation, or two, believing that you're saved just because you're good enough, not because Jesus was good enough. Jesus is calling us to something deeper. Now, these next words, I want to tell you there's some, some theological debates around here, and, and there's a reason for it. The Bible's not clear on this. Sometimes the Bible purposely leaves us in the gray because it's meant to challenge us. The reason I read the Bible is not to affirm my position, but to challenge my positions. The purpose of the Bible is not to strengthen so that you can argue with people. It's so that you can look and say, God, how am I depending? How am I wrestling with your word? How is that word affecting me? And this is one of those verses that should give you some pause. It's this, verses 3 through 4. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that's the law, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, what he's saying is this. If you think being circumcised, if you think obeying one rule is that's where you want to put your trust, you're actually obligated to all the rules, not just that one. You now to live by, you are obligated to obey every single one of the commands, which Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. We now have a new law, which is in Jesus, and that law is love, which we're going to get to in a minute. But here's where, honestly, I want you to hear these words and hear them carefully. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated, which means to be set aside, to be removed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, depending on who you talk to, this is one of those theological disagreements. There are some who will say, once saved, always saved. You can never lose your salvation. 
And the question is not, can you lose your salvation like you lose your keys? Oh my gosh, where'd my salvation go? Right? That's, that's not what it means. It's the real question for them is, is God's grip so weak that he can't hold tight those who belong to him? And there are plenty of verses that actually talk about the fact that God holds tightly his children, those who are in Christ. The second view is that you actually can lose your salvation. However, it's not a losing as much as it is a handing back. Now, I'll tell you, if you want to know the Lutheran view, well, a lot of Lutherans have different views, but I believe if you read Luther, Luther tends to lean towards the idea that you can hand back your salvation. It's not like one day you're tripping along and then, whoops, where'd my salvation go? No, when it says that word fall from grace, that word grace is another word for salvation. The idea is that, no, there are some things that you can do that you might hand back. You might reject Christ and Christ and his love might allow you to do that. Now, here's the thing. There are different views on this, and I think we have to trust in the Lord. But the challenge, Paul's point here is not about whether or not you can lose your salvation. It's not putting yourself in the position to begin with. Does that make sense? Let me give you an idea. See, biblically, the theological $10 term for losing your salvation is called apostasy. And apostasy just means that you have literally, you have walked away from, fallen away from, you want nothing to do with it. To be apostate means you are not in right standing with God anymore. And here's the problem, is that I've met many Christians who struggle with wondering, Jason, how do I know if I'm saved? What if I've lost my salvation? Here's the first thing. If you're asking the question, you probably are. I don't know very many non-Christians who are like, I'm really concerned I'm going to hell. I don't. I know seekers who are God is working in their heart and they're going to ask, I don't, I don't want to be separate from God. But if you're a Christian, if you're asking yourself, I don't know if I'm saved, it means you probably are because you care about it for a reason. So what does it mean? What does it look like to fall from grace? What does it look like to fall away? How is a better understanding of this? Well, I'll share a, a story. When I was in my uh, about 12, 13 years old, we lived in El Cajon, California. And it's funny, I have friends that have gone and visited there now. It's been gentrified. It looks really nice and pretty, and it's been cleaned up. And my friends are like, El Cajon is beautiful. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it wasn't like that when I was a kid. So in our neighborhood, they had torn down a building. And I don't remember. It was like some department store. It might have been a Kmart or something like that. They had torn down the inside, and all that remained was the skeleton of it. And there were signs on it that said, do not enter, prohibited, unsafe, to be in. It's an unsafe structure. Us as 12, 13-year-olds, what we saw that as was an invitation to go explore. And so we walked in. Now again, this is before cell phones. We didn't have flashlights. We walked into this building, and there was a part of us that loved it. Why? Because we were rebelling. There's that thing inside of us that kind of likes rebelling. It feels good. And now this didn't happen, but let's suppose I go in the first time, and nothing happens. And so I go, well, Nothing really happened. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. So I bring my friends. We go in the next day. But here's the thing that happens with sin. Usually when we sin, we don't just stop there. We keep on pushing it and pushing it. And so imagine now the second, third time I go in, I'm no longer just going inside. Now I'm going deep within it. There was even a rumor that someone had been murdered inside of this building. I don't know if it was true or not. But there was a part of us that we love to explore. Now imagine for a moment, each time my heart gets hardened to the danger of the reality of what's going on. The Bible calls this pride and arrogance. When my heart gets hard to what sin is, and now I'm going in and I'm exploring because that sign doesn't know it's best for me. I know it's best for me, and this is fun. So now as we're going in, now, my friends, we go and explore the basement, walking around in the dark and 
loving, loving the rebelliousness, the, the, the freedom we're feeling. And then because I feel really safe, we eventually climb up on the roof. And in the roof, as I'm walking, I end up falling through a hole in the roof because it was never safe and I died. Obviously didn't happen. I'm here. This is my point. This is what it looks like to fall from grace. It's not a one thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's a multiple thing. It's things that start off small that lead into bigger and bigger habits. Right now, there, I just read that another Christian rap artist has denounced his faith. And he talked about it and he said it's actually started five years ago. It started with, as Casting Crowns called it, a slow faith. It starts with questioning an area of sin or belief. And then you take it a little bit farther, and it, it doesn't take one moment. It takes many moments, lots of moments that over time. And now we're finding pastors, artists, musicians, even people in our church who are doing this really cool hip thing called deconstructing. If you've never heard the term, it's actually not a bad thing. There are some people who it's, it's a cool thing to deconstruct your faith. The problem is they're not deconstructing, they're just destroying their faith. Because the purpose of deconstructing is that you develop your faith. That it's not about what uh, my parents taught me or my youth pastor taught me or the books that I read. It's discovering what does God's word look like for me and how do I understand Jesus. And you deconstruct so you can reconstruct. But too many people aren't doing that. Instead what they're doing is they're slowly walking away. One of my best friends in high school. And this still breaks my heart. Everybody looked at him and thought he was going to be a pastor. I'm not going to say his name because I don't have permission from the family. But his family was near and dear to me. And, and everybody looked at him and thought he was going to be the pastor. He was going to be the guy who was going to go into ministry. He ended up going to a Christian university. And towards the end of his time there, he slowly made one small decision that led to another one. And eventually, he completely renounced Jesus. That friend died five years ago from cancer. And I was talking to his brother, who's a good friend of mine, and I asked him about it, and I said, you know, where does he stand with this? And his response was, well, I didn't know I existed before I was born. I'm not going to know I existed after I'm dead. I don't really care anymore. Do you think it just happened? Do you think he went from a vibrant, living faith to where he loved Jesus, he cared about Jesus, and then all of a sudden, whoop, it was just gone no, it started with small compromises, small things, and his heart eventually got hard. And the crazy thing about human nature is we can unconvince ourselves of the truth that God has revealed in us. This is why Paul tells us to stand firm. It's something that is a threat for so many of us. And to say that someone fell or fell from grace, it's that they made choices to put themselves in positions where they could fall. And it's a challenge that we all need to lead into, but how do we make sure that we stay sustained in faith? How do we make sure that we don't actually fall in our faith, that we continue? Paul gives us the answers here in Galatians 5 and 6. Okay, this is Galatians 5. Check this out. For through the Spirit, that word Spirit is Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I know as Lutherans, the Holy Spirit's like that weird uncle no one wants to talk about. But the Holy Spirit is a real, he is the third person of the Trinity. You can have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us. We're saved by Jesus, but empowered through the Spirit. Paul says this, For through the Holy Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. That righteousness we hope for is that when we stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, Judgment Day is a real thing, all of creation is going to stand before God one day, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, 
And Jesus is going to declare who is in right relationship with him. Our hope through the Holy Spirit is that when we put our faith in Jesus, that when Jesus judges, he looks at us and says these words, mine, they belong to me. And the thing that sustains us in those moments of doubt, in those moments of trial and struggle and sin. See, I don't, when I sin, and I do, you know what keeps me secure? What keeps me from running into doubt? It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit reminding me of God's goodness, not my goodness. Does that make sense? It's that Holy Spirit, which means we must have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's a relationship that's accessible. And that's what Paul's going to be getting into. When we, at next week, we're climbing, we're really getting to this beautiful top where Paul's going to look at what does it look like to live life in the Spirit? What does it look like for us as a church to live life in the Spirit, knowing that our righteousness is found in Jesus? Now, that word hope is interesting. In our culture, hope, human hope, means wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope I get a raise. I hope... The Packers lost last night. <laughs> I hope the Vikings get a better coach. <laughs> That's what human hope is. But gospel hope, biblical hope, spirit-infused hope is certainty and trust that God will fulfill all of the promises He's made. Therefore, it's a hope that's not rooted in I hope so. It's a hope rooted in I know so because my hope is in Jesus. When you are struggling and wrestling with doubt, it's the Holy Spirit that reminds you where your hope is put in. You want to know how I've learned what is essential and non-essential? This is how I determine whether or not this is an argument worth having. Now, don't get me wrong. The conversations around theology, infant baptism, those are good conversations. We should have them. But are they ultimate conversations? No. End times theology. When is Jesus going to return? I don't know. All I really care about is that he's going to. When and how? Don't really care. Six-day creation. Did God literally create in six days or was it somewhere, something else? I don't really care. You want to know why? My hope is not in speaking in tongues. My hope is not in infant versus adult baptism. My hope is not in God creation over six days or not. My hope is not in being in Lutheran or some other denomination. My hope is in Jesus. Is your hope in Jesus? That's where our hope is. That's the essential. Everything else is good conversation. It should help us grow, but it's not ultimate. Listen to what he says in 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, which is legalism, nor uncircumcision, liberalism, again, not political, has any value. Listen to these next words. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What matters most is faith expressing itself through through love. You know what doesn't really matter to Jesus is where theology where theologically you stand on non-essential issues. What matters is faith expressing itself in love. Okay, so this year, this last year, 2000 what year is it? 22 2021. Man, it's everything's slow. 2021, we launched a new vision and mission statement. And it's rooted in this Hebrew word tov. Everybody say tov. Can anybody tell me what tov means? Good. We did a whole series on it, right? Our mission, our vision as a church is to be a church that doesn't just do good, but brings God's goodness into the world and people's lives around us. 
Because it's faith expressing itself in love. That's our hope. That's what our desire is as a church. We want to bring God's goodness into the world. That is faith expressing itself through love. That is what we are aiming for. Now, uh, if you've ever owned a hot tub or a pool, you do a pH test, right? You have the little put the strip in because you can't just swim in a pool. you got to make sure the chemicals are all balanced. What if we need a pH test for our faith? And imagine for a moment, the question is, do I have not enough love or do I have too much love? And that sounds weird, but here's what I mean by this. Paul doesn't say what matters most is faith. He also doesn't say what matters most is love. He also doesn't say what matters most, most is faith in love. He says what matters most is faith expressed through love. The evidence of our faith, the evidence that Jesus, that we understand the gospel is in how we live our lives. Are we living alive, our lives based upon the boundaries that God has set up? God defines what love is, not you, not me. And here's the reason why. If I define love, what I'm going to do is make sure that I get the most benefit from it. That's human nature. So we need God to define love. And he does this in 1 Corinthians 13. If many of you at your weddings, you probably have this verses read. Let me read to you. God defines love. God gives us the litmus test, a pH balance. Here it is. I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always, always perseveres. Love never fails. Jesus, through Paul, is saying, listen, if you want to know what faith expressed through love looks like, that's it. And we don't do that very well as a church, and this is where we go to the hope of Jesus. It's not about our perfection, it's about His, which is how we end up with the end of Galatians, this last part of Galatians. Listen to this in Galatians chapter 5. Paul now says these words, you were running a good race. Remember we started off with the sports metaphor. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you a little yeast, works through the whole batch of dough. See, here's the idea. God sets a race and there is a boundary for us, but there are things that cut in on our faith. Did you know there are things that are constantly pulling, trying to cut in on your walk with Jesus? In this case, it was the Judaizers, but it's, sometimes it's things that started off as good. You know how many Christians I know who they've let COVID cut in on their faith? I want you to look around. How many of you have noticed people that are no longer coming to church? They haven't been to church in months. And I'm not, I don't mean they're watching online. I mean, I mean just they're not doing it at all. You want to know what happened? They lost the habit. Why? Because COVID hit and they lost the habit of coming to church, being connected, until eventually... I'll talk to him, like, hey, we miss you at church. Yeah, I know, I should probably go. We just got out of the habit. As if loving Jesus was like eating chocolate. It's easy. There's always things trying to cut in on our faith. 
Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes it's a spouse. One of the reasons why I always encourage Christians to marry Christians, you know how hard it is to go to church when your spouse has no desire to go? We see it in hobbies. How quickly we'll, we'll abandon things that we believe in for something that's temporarily good. And again, I'm not saying our hobbies bad. No. Our jobs bad. No. Is it all about church? No. But the reason why we gather is we're not called to do this alone. He then goes on and he says this, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. There are those who sometimes want to get in the way of your faith, and sometimes those people exist in the church. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, I love this. Paul sometimes gets a little harsh. He goes a little aggro. As for those agitators, talking about the Judaizers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Here's what Paul just said. This small group of people think that what makes them spiritual is that they have a little skin cut off of a private area. If they really want to be spiritual, they should just cut the whole darn thing off. Let's see how that gets you going. Now you're super spiritual. Paul says hard things in love. Now I want to leave you, and I promise this is very quick, I want to leave you with five things we learn about keeping the race, truths about running the race of faith. And when I say they're quick, I mean, hold on, they're fast. The first one, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you have been a Christian for five years or less? Show of hands. Okay. By show of hands, how many of you have been a Christian for 10 years or less? Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. 10 years or less. 20 years or less. 30 years or less. 40 how many 50-year-old Christians do we have? 50 been Christians for 50 years. 60? Got some of the grandparents up in here? See, here's the goal. It's not about how you start the race. It's about how you finish the race. See, when we look at this, Paul wants to remind us it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're going to trip and fall. It's going to happen. There are going to be hard times. That's the second one. Following Jesus is not easy. There will be those who want to knock you out of the race. You're going to have people who think Christianity is silly. You're going to have family members. You're going to have colleagues and friends who think that this Christian thing is dumb. You don't pay attention to them. You might even have people in the church who want to knock you out of the race by, instead of focusing on Jesus, they want you to focus on the wrong thing, like a music style. You'll be tempted to run alone, but it's better to run in a group. Now, I don't run. I know none of y'all are shocked by that. I don't run. Now, part of it is I got big legs, right? It takes a lot of blood, a lot of oxygen to run through these legs. But what I've been told by those weird people who like to run long distances, and y'all are weird to do that. I'm just saying it. That when you're running a marathon, it's better to run in a group. Because when you get tired, when you get discouraged, when you want to give up, when you run in a group, those people keep you going through the hardship. Is that true? Again, I've never done it. The farthest I've ever run is three miles, and I just about died. Right? You people who run, like, I have, I have people in our church who are like, yeah, I ran 14 miles yesterday. Were, were you being chased? Like, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> you need community. You want to know why we gather as a church? It's because we live in a hard world. Because we have all these things that are trying to knock you off. It's always better. You are always safer in a pack. We're called to run together. And here's the last one. You can start well, but finish poorly. That's why it's how you finish that really matters. 
What really matters is not, it's not your perfection. It's your persistence in Jesus. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good Jesus is. In those moments when you stumble and fall, you need community around you to pick you up, to keep you going, because we all are going to fall. It's part of human nature. What we want is freedom. But we want freedom in Jesus, where Jesus defines what love is, where Jesus brings the boundaries in our life so that we can live the most free. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're going to receive our tithe and offering. But I want to leave you with this word. And as we come to worship, let us be reminded of this, that freedom in Jesus is really free. The most freeing thing you can have is knowing your relationship with God is secure. It's not a freedom to do whatever you want. It's a freedom to do the things that God desires for you because those are the best things. Amen? Let's come, bring our offering to the Lord. Let's come and worship. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen.